Revisiting your childhood home can be a happy trip down memory lane, but it can also be a little unnerving for you and the current owners. The New York Times, October 4th, 2019. <clears throat> Mic check, one, two, one, two. Introduction right here. The Ordinary Times. Check. One, two. Stories for people who only attend church on Christmas and Easter. Where we explore the parallel narratives between the good news and the good newspaper. Extra, extra. The story in this New York Times article from a few years back begins when the author revisits her childhood home that she hadn't been back to since she was 15. On a day trip with her parents and her husband, she thought it'd be nice to pop back in on childhood home. And she's surprised when she knocks on the door and the current homeowner invites her inside to see the changes. And there were changes. So this visit is a mix of nostalgia and judgment. Nostalgia of showing her husband where she grew up, remembering with her parents how things were, but secretly wondering what the current owner was thinking with their renovations. Likewise, maybe there was a silent tension with the current owner being critiqued by those who left. In a roundabout way, I found myself in similar shoes. As you may know, I'm from New Orleans and I was raised a Black Baptist. A few months ago, I had to return home to do a family funeral. It was a great time to come home after a few years and after the whole pandemic, meet with cousins, but also to minister in a context that I hadn't preached in in a few years. As you may know, I'm now a Mennonite, but still culturally Baptist. After I gave that eulogy and spent the full day with family members, I had a few hours the next morning before my flight went out. So I contacted an old friend who was a roommate and fraternity brother from college. And now he was the incoming pastor of a Black Baptist church. And I thought I'd shoot through and attend service with him. So that's the background context of me connecting with my friend, college roommate and fraternity brother, Jamiron who will interview this morning about his thoughts concerning returning home after receiving multiple degrees, uh, multiple career changes, and coming back to his old neighborhood to be a pastor and practice his secular profession for the betterment of the community and the idea of returning back home. So let's give him a call. Gospel. The Gospel according to Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. And he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after the younger son gathered all together, and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine, and he would fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants.
Extra, extra. Welcome to the podcast, brother. This may be... Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Well, um, this may, may or not be uh, the second time we're recording this because I'm elderly now and I forgot to press record on the Zoom. Uh, I may have... I may have not just sort of learned this with the pandemic. You know, maybe I don't know technology. Nevertheless, we're talking about our background together. And uh, it says here that we're some type of internal organization, uh, which, you know, has to be an error because, you know, that's what sinners do. And, uh, you know, I, I, I live holiness in the Lord. Don't do that dancing and shaking around. Uh, I don't know what that's about. But uh, I probably was the best dancer and stepper, if that is correct. There's no video footage um, of those things. I think that was in time before videos. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think just drawing documentation on, on caves in those days. That's right. Nevertheless, so here I am at this this medium to sort of small size Jesuit college in uptown New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm about two years older than me. And there is, I met you through the Black Student Union. There's this bright young man, came from a Jesuit high school. Actually, the name is Jesuit High School. Yeah. And uh, with the valedictorian there, stand out. Uh, and you can also tell some of the intelligence about the circle that's around him. You were surrounded by young, bright, clever, uh, next generation, sort of hope of the Royal Black Student <laughs> Union. And you're from uptown New Orleans, which yeah. is an interest, which is an interesting place, um, ethnically, culturally, historically, uh, not geographically, because it's surprisingly, you know, compact, right. um, but also economically. And after after college, um, I remember with all types of training. Uh, so of course you went to with the grad school, you went to pharmacy school, uh, you ended up going to seminary. You, uh, I believe that uh, you went to uh, some type of Harry Potter training after that uh, <laughs> with Quidditch scholarship I think that was um, for the listeners I made up a whole bunch of other stuff I had to change it up so Jermaine doesn't fall asleep marginalized uh, marginalized scholarships yeah. Harry Potter University 3pm is our bedtime at, at, at this <laughs> age so I gotta keep him awake and on his toe nevertheless you became like the most educated brother outside of like the renaissance um, and you brought it all full circle, and now we, you are what we call, uh, you're bivocational. So you are a young new pastor, and you are a practicing pharmacist. So those two wonderful, amazing callings that you practice in ministry and medicine, and you brought it back home to Uptown New Orleans. Can you tell me about that journey and what that's like? Yeah, absolutely. So being born and raised in the Irish Channel um, you you get exposed to at the time where I was being raised it was a predominantly African-American neighborhood um, mm-hmm. had the the typical trajectory for a male in my neighborhood uh, would not have landed me where I am today right it's it's really it was really like many other uh, men, who are, whose lived experience is rooted in uh, what America was like in the 80s and 90s growing up, we really weren't set up for success unless you had parents who were super intentional around your success. Um, and so just through you know, a lot of my, my mother who at the helm made sure that I had great educational um, opportunities and God's grace, really, uh, led yeah. me to uh, being able to be a part of programs that saw my potential, that then challenged me in higher education and education opportunities that I was able to excel in, leading me to Jesuit and then Loyola uh, for that formal education. Um, after that, really, honestly, I could say it was truly me me trying to find my way you know we all go through that that 20s experience where you feel like you have to have it figured out so that you you have your 30s are pretty set and and succinct and that just you know i followed that same trend that just was the thing for me um but i graduated the year that katrina hit new orleans and so that was a, a super um 
rebellious act for me, but intentional act for God. Um, in that, like I moved away to Florida and taken a job outside of my career, outside of my degree rather. And um, the that was me trying to carve my own path, but God used it really as a way of um, allowing me to house 13 family members in my, my two bedroom apartment in Pensacola, Florida um, after Katrina hit. So there was that. And then from there, really me looking internally and trying to find and, and figure out where I needed to be landed me in uh, education back in New Orleans as a school teacher and then pharmacy, getting my MBA, starting a nonprofit and a couple of other ventures that um, I think that, you know, God really was at the helm. He was leading it and uh, guiding me through it because I really had no idea what I was doing. Um, I had no, no intentional path uh, per se. I knew that I was good at certain things but these opportunities started to present themselves and I just had the faith to take them on, to, to you know, challenge myself and um, complete them. So the urge to find my place in my spiritual life had always been there. I think that was birth uh, greater at Loyola, having such a, a strong nucleus of black students in the Black Student Union, in um, the Hour of Power in that ministry circle just really forcing me to, to look super deep inside and think about my own personal relationship. Um, before that, religion had always been something to do um, instead of building a true relationship and connectedness. And so Loyola challenged me in that. And it challenged me because I was being introduced to so many other religions and so many other perspectives. And so it made me want to definitely be sure and certain that what I was doing and, and the God I was serving, um, I was certain about. So that in the background um, had always been there. After I had pretty much become a professional, I started to truly think about my place in the church and what I wanted to do and how I would give back. And I had this pull or push rather <laughs> to ministry, like really using my voice and um, allowing my ability to dive into my studies and really explain complex, to some would be, what would be complex ideas in a very simple way that connects with other people, I think was my gift. And so it was a natural step into ministry, into preaching. Uh, for me, and I and I had had a pretty clear uh, what people say like revelation about where I should be, um, and I never was I wasn't rebellious in that. You know, I was looking long enough to know that once I heard very clearly from God that this is what I needed to do, and it aligned with so much of me that was innate, I knew I needed to do it. So preaching became it was a natural flow for me. Um, this this pastoral journey, however, that that is very interesting um, and new. So we we will see what God is going to bring me with that. So let's let's talk about that because um, you know, we, we have some listeners from different traditions, and we'll, we'll be we'll be talking uh, Black Baptist language here, um, which yeah. is familiar language to a couple different traditions, so even if you're not African-American, you'll notice familiar language, let's say if you're a white Pentecostal, um, uh, or a small church congregation of some sort. So when we talk about going into ministry, we talk about uh, a call, or receiving a call. Um, and we, we may not use words like vocation as much, which is interesting, because um, I, I've been noticing amongst my peers, and I need to sort of do more research other people I know who went to, like, Catholic colleges um, who are Protestant clergy. But it's interesting. Uh, amongst young men, and I say predominantly young men because I don't see a percentage parallel amongst um, young women that we went to college with. Uh, and part of that is patriarchal nature of, um, of ministry in many Christian denominations, yep. but there there is the Catholic side where we we had a lot of our classmates who did the Jesuit volunteer year, um, or the Jesuit volunteer corps. Some of them become priests. Um, 
now that they're in their later 30s and 40s, I start to see some of them are becoming deacons or maybe they work for the archdiocese or some type of organization that's connected to it. Um, on the other side, on the Protestant side though, and you would think that there's, I'd say a larger percentage of the Protestant young men that went to our school, especially, you know, an African-American community, went on to be Protestant clergy members. So you have yourself, um, of my generation a little bit older you, you have like uh, Moses Gordon uh, you have Jamal Weathersby um, a whole lot of folks uh, Anthony Pollard you have you have a lot of folks that went on to win you wouldn't necessarily think you would, I think uh, an outsider would think that if Protestant went to a Catholic college or, or like yourself and like Moses um, and even like Christian Martin uh, went to all Catholic yeah. schooling from elementary to college, um, because of course, you know, I was to public schools and was raised on the main streets of Gentilly Wood, uh, <laughs> which is, you know, funny to any listener who may be of a certain age and certain geography. <laughs> Nevertheless, you wouldn't think that uh, being that immersed within Catholicism in the formative years, I don't think there's a reaction against it, but it, it almost helped form your your Protestant, your Baptist, your Father's yes. Pentecostal faith. Um, can you talk about the relationship with both of them, with, on the Baptist side, hearing and answering a calling, and on the Catholic education, understanding that in being a vocation and a spiritual formation, a spiritual exercise? Absolutely. So I've always sort of assumed in my mind or made it make sense to me that they were just uh, adjacent. You know, as people say today, they were very much so adjacent in that um, I walked the path of a Protestant, um, but Catholicism was always there. What I've always appreciated about Catholicism was how uh, unified, centralized and well-defined things were in in the Catholic faith um, or in the practice of Catholicism. I feel like we all we all have the same general um, ideas around Christ. and so they of course are our brothers and sisters but i think that i've just i've always appreciated that order um and that things were very clear and written um whether i agreed with them or not they were always there and available whereas i feel like that is now has really framed my mindset as i approach the pastorate thinking about the intentionality of the things that we do in my specific church, yes, but then in the greater Protestant church overall. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would not have had that 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 focus, and I would not have had that exposure had I not been Catholic educated. Um, I just think mm-hmm. that you know there's a reason why there's Catholic education, but not Protestant education. It's not really a thing. Um, though we go to mm-hmm. Protestant, there are Protestant-founded universities. Um, when you think about uh, sending your, especially here in New Orleans, you say, oh, I went to Catholic school. You don't say I went to mm-hmm. Protestant yeah. school. You say I went to, you know, such and such Episcopal or, you know, that thing. But yeah. Catholic school is Catholic school because they, they predominate um, that particular sector here. Uh, and because that was a thing, because we grew up here knowing that and understanding that, just being able to to take advantage of, of the order and organization in the Catholic space allows us to then glean from them and bring over all of those aspects. Um, and we can we can leave behind, you know, the, the things that we don't necessarily align with, but absolutely take the structure and make ourselves as efficient um, as our Catholic brothers and sisters. So I, I definitely think they're adjacent. They go, you know, hand in hand. They align pretty well. Now, like, likewise, um, of course, I was raised Black Baptist, like self. I'm, I'm the son of a, I'm a Black Baptist pastor. Um, but likewise, I grew up in New Orleans, uh, which is a, very much a Catholic city. And even even half the Protestants, especially if you like full gospel Baptist, half of them are ex-Catholic. Yes. You know, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> you, you know, um, so you know, Protestant up until you know. Fridays there in Lent, and you, you gotta go to your tradition. True. I actually had a uh, pastor in Los Angeles who, um, so he, you know, it's 
not the national denominational church, but you know, one of those secretly Southern Baptist. Yeah. Um, but he's a uh, he's Salvadorian, and he said, you know, we um, nobody actually ever stops being a Catholic. <laughs> you know, we change our denomination, and you know, very much a Protestant church, but it just just ain't you. Yeah. So with that, uh, let's bring back to that understanding of calling and vocation, because obviously. When we as Baptists we talk about calling, we are only talking about preaching, <laughs> not the ministry. We're talking about preaching, <laughs> yeah. not deacon, not usher, whatever you want to call it. So I'm preaching. But you have two vocations, and I really do mean the spiritual language that you get to thousands of other things. I believe that there is a, a holy calling into what you do in medicine. So talk about the spiritual calling of what you do in medicine in the time of COVID. Absolutely. So there has been a design, I feel, to my entering into pharmacy, uh, specifically as opposed to uh, medicine, disease state medicine, which is your physician. Yeah. Your, you know, um, for me, it was, it, it was drugs and it's almost like it had to be drugs so something that many people do not know about me and i think your listeners would appreciate this um i alluded to my mother being sort sort of the um the leader in in charge of my educational path and really wanting to give me every possible opportunity available to me out there um, but she served as a single parent my dad is not deceased um he was in jail and had been in jail for about 10 years of my life for drug dealing. And so yeah. people don't, you know, people hear that and they cringe or, or they find, you know, want to sympathize and it's like, no, that's not, it's not at all uh, a testimony looking for that. It is divine in that my dad made choices that, you know, he has atoned for, um, but it was due to drug dealing and, and me, the progeny, becomes a legalized professional drug dealer you know like it's yeah yeah just yeah. the beauty and things like that that come along um but i do but and i say that to say um that i see that as the the foundation of the divine call in medicine for me and so during covid that was important because i really had to guide my entire church community into understanding the disease first and foremost to debunking yes. some of the false information that was out there and thankfully i had the credential behind me to substantiate a lot of what i was saying because people were listening to all types of things and i was just thankful that you know yes i call myself i'm called the, the uh, pastor and i'm a preacher but i'm also um you know a pharmacist and i am proud of that and I have the credential for that, and I've gone to school and have been educated, and I continue my education uh, to make sure that I'm current on my understanding of different disease states and how we treat them. So it played a major role in COVID as a result. I would have, I mean, none of us would have, would have ever thought that in our lifetimes we would experience a pandemic, right? Sure. Um, the Ebola hit the Florida coast, and we all, you know, we got kind of crazy during the Obama administration, but they contained yeah. it. You know, they, they made sure it stayed local localized. Um, they treated the, the few people who had it. Some survived, some didn't. And then we sort of moved on. Um, but who would have known we, we would exist in a space where hundreds of thousands of people internationally have, have passed as a result of this. And so just having those frontline workers, myself as a pharmacist and more specifically to the work that I was able to do, um, and then continue to do also because I'm constantly educating the congregation on um, vaccination and giving them the, the information so that they can make a choice. I think there have been some congregations where they, you know, sort of wag their finger and point it and say, get the vaccination. Um, I really, I'm, I'm more of an encourager. You know, people are adults yeah. and we can make adult decisions around your health and your body. And I'm a huge believer in that. Um, but I am going to give you all of the most accurate information possible. And so I do think that uh, for such a time as this, my becoming a pharmacist um, was something that served a personal and somewhat selfish, if I'm being completely transparent, um, 
you know, purpose in my life at the time where I decided to um, to undertake that particular um, degree, but has completely been used. Like most things that happen in my life, I I make a decision, but God uses that to serve His purpose, um, and that's what it's. That's pretty much what medicine has been. Gospel. The Gospel according to Luke. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight. And am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet. And bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead, and is alive again, for he was lost, and is found. And they began to be merry. Extra, extra. All right, let's get to the centerpiece. Got Your it. memory is either a Christmas or an Easter. Yeah, so I, I, I can go to Easter. Um, I love Christmas, but with Easter around the corner, I can definitely go to um, Easter, especially in the Baptist tradition. You know, this is the CMEs. You know, like Easter is, is, is the third of the, I mean, the second of the three. Christmas, Mother's Day, and Easter, but but Easter sort of comes around, and um, that is when people, it's like homecoming <laughs> for the HBCU. Mm-hmm. You 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 know everybody comes back. They come in their best dress. They're ready to have a great time and worship and um, acknowledge you know uh, Christ and His uh, saving grace on the cross. And so that's it's always been a, it's always been a a great experience for me. I think. What, what was lost in the weeds for me is the true value of Easter because it's always been a lot of stress around getting the perfect suit and tie and, you know, yeah. making sure that we had all of our plans in place for family to get together and making sure, you know, we we're on, at church on time. And so, and, and my dad, when I was much younger, he really drew my attention to the um, the chocolate bunnies and the the peeps and the candy and all of the you know the baskets that kind of stuff so those are those have become some of my fondest memories of Easter um, for me but now it's really different you know like I enter into the Lenten season um, more intentionally I always either add in something which this year I, I took out something but I added in something in previous years. Um, after having talking to a priest, right? Like, hey, what what is what is a practice that I can do um, in terms of either shedding or adding that's going to help me in my personal walk, and um, as I as I move into a greater appreciation and understanding of um, the resurrection. So that's that's I mean, that's where I am today. But but I do I am in, still in the process of like having to shed because I don't want my son to be so focused on like the bunnies and the candy in the basket. I want him to enjoy <laughs> that stuff. But I mean, when we think about Easter, you know, that this is the homecoming for the church. So yeah. we got to make sure we understand resurrection, you know? So yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you talk about homecoming for the church. And so, you know, I mean, we, we made the joke of uh, the listeners who, who aren't like Baptists. That is a big joke. And then you heard Christian two weeks ago talk about being being a baptized CME. Of course, he was talking about uh, was it uh, Christian Methodist Episcopal? Uh-huh. When Baptists, like Baptists, say that it is a joke. We're talking about people who attend on Christmas, Mother's Day, and Easter. <laughs> the, the three uh, day, holy days of obligation for Black Baptists. It's a thing. We talk about community homecoming. So, and a lot of times we think of the church as being people who, you know, 
attend uh, every week if possible. Give you know 10% if that's the understanding of that congregation or on some type of committee or you know, actively involved in ministry. But you're talking about people who are just going to show up. I mean, if they come every three years, you are happy to see them. Right. But then also, I think the threat of community you've been talking about is you coming back and you serving the community as, as an armistice preacher. And it's almost like, I imagine there's a lot of other ethnic communities this way, but I can speak to the black community of the idea of a, a religious elder. We can sort of use uh, Pentecostal words there. Um, and a community elder yeah. merged, you know, in, in the black faith tradition. Yeah. So, so is that a heavy weight upon you? I, I don't necessarily think so. I think um, heavy is the head that wears the crown, right? So the expectation for me is that because I've been called to it, um, that mm-hmm. God is going to provide everything that I need in it. Now, that, of course, does not mean I, I'm not stressed out over things and um, I'm, I'm constantly having to find ways of balancing. But one of the reassuring um, sort of thoughts that sit in the back of my mind all the time is that God has called other people to this really successfully and they've done it and are doing it and are thriving in it. Um, so that, yeah. you know, he's done it for those people, then he can absolutely do the same for me in this walk and in this vocation are in the bivocation um both that align to you know what he's called me to we when we think about historically in the black church the community leaders were the religious leaders they were one and the same um only recently has that become you know there's been this divergence from that but um i think we would benefit strongly especially in cities like new orleans that has such a high african-american population and ally population um that we would come together and allow those religious leaders to take that place again um we just need to you know just make sure that we we have a clear um understanding of what the outcomes need to be and that we're respectful of everyone while we're doing the work um, of leading communities not everyone who we're going to meet is going to want to follow christ that's just the reality. But that doesn't mean that they can't be led and they can't be led by a religious leader. Um, so it's yeah. just building that, that double consciousness uh, that we all should have in those leadership uh, capacities that'll allow people to see that they follow you because you're a good person. They follow Christ as it's reflected in you if they align with that, but they don't necessarily have to. Now, of course, as a yeah. preacher, I would I would want that. You know, I, I absolutely would want that um, because it's the basic tenet of my belief. But it's yeah. not necessary because that's not going to not believing in Christ isn't going to uh, be the the crux upon which our communities fail. Um, making sure that we have leaders who can lead through a Christian lens is going to help our communities to thrive. On that thread, let's talk about community, because um, even though we, we try to argue against it, most churches are a physical location. You know, of course, when people think of it, you know, the church is a people rather right. than a place. Right. Um, but your church has been there for a number of years yes. in that neighborhood, you know. Um, yeah. And so when we were college roommates, uh, I think that you had you had long hair, you had cornrows at that time. <laughs> um, but everybody else, I mean, my hair was crazy long too. I didn't have cornrows. Um, but everybody else in sort of the, the black community, a lot of us went to this barber, Mr. Dennis on Ferret. Yeah, yeah. And it has been my practice, uh, I don't know if he's still around, but it's been my practice for a couple of decades that if I came when I go back to New Orleans to get my hair cut by Mr. Dennis, um, you know, drop him twenty dollars a tip so he thinks that I'm doing amazing in Los Angeles and I can keep up I can keep up appearances. But he told me, so this is just a few this is walking distance from Loyola and Tulane. Right. You're right. both universities. But you cross over and it's, it's definitely like a different type of neighborhood. 
So I remember last time he was like, uh, so this was probably 10 years ago with the conversation he had, he said, man, neighborhood is changing. They're selling $15 hot dogs down the street. <laughs> was, of course, it was like a hipster restaurant, right? Yeah. Not like there's a football game going on. So New Orleans, like, like many or most uh, metropolitan areas, is going through gentrification. Mm-hmm. Um, and much of uptown New Orleans is going through it as well. Um, it has been my experience that a lot of uh, historically African-American churches in neighborhoods all across Los Angeles, very much included, um, have reacted against gentrification um, in a protest mode, which, of course, you want to keep prices low for working class people and poor people. Um, however, it seems like you are a minister of the gospel, too. Um, so these new people are people. They have souls. They are in your community, even if they aren't in your quote unquote community. Are you facing that lately? And how? Wh- how what's your approach? Yes, we are. We absolutely are. Um, I have uh, really built a coalition with other pastors in my community. Those who have mentored me have become friends uh, now that I'm transitioning to that position. Um, and, and most of them have had already had a footprint in uh, understanding what gentrification would mean and how our churches need to respond. Now, of course, me coming from a school like Loyola, I felt like I was extremely well prepared to deal with these types of changes. I mean, we, we truly, even in our own student experience and the things that happen, like the Black Student Union office being uh, you know, basically co-opted and changed and uh, it's the, the mural that you yourself designed. You know, students stood up and said, hey, this is, this is a part of the black culture here at Loyola. You need to preserve this, like something needs to be done. Um, and it's with that understanding and that learning that I've entered into our communities and at a very basic level, Jay, everybody can benefit from knowing Christ every single person it does not matter how they come into the community but that they are there christ is for them and i I can firmly state that Um, how we are going to bring christ to them is how we would bring christ to anyone else and i don't like to overcomplicate things that they don't necessarily have to be and so i just feel like no we don't necessarily appreciate that the process of gentrification is driving our people away but we're putting in resources to keep them connected. So we have two church vans, one that goes to the West Bank, one that goes to the New Orleans East. And for listeners, those are gonna be areas where people are being driven out of New Orleans proper and are now living in um, those, I don't know if we can call them suburbs, but the, yeah. the outskirts so, of the but yeah, it's yeah. 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 So we're just wanting to to make sure that the members have that support, um, those who are being pushed out. Uh, And then we're now making a way that everybody in the neighborhood as it's changing, and it's not everybody who's being pushed out because there's still a lot of people there, especially in my church that's located in Mid-City. We have have a, a lot of people who still haven't, we haven't gone out and evangelized to, we haven't gone out and offered them things. But I think that, and just saying that, we need to offer people something. We have to offer them something to get them there. There is no usefulness for anybody. I don't care what race you are, you're not gonna come. Um, And so that's what we're thinking about. That's what that coalition, we all think about together, how our churches can support one another, how our churches can really um, perform strategic outreach into our communities, and then really to do a lot of reflection to think about what programmatic things do we have in place that make people want to come? Children in New Orleans, we have a, an uptick in car robberies that are being, that are being um, it's, it's the 12 year, 13, 14 year olds who are doing this. Yeah. Well, if we have something to offer them that gives them a greater hope than them taking a chance to steal someone's stuff, they're going to come. The parents are going to come. Or if we at least are a hub for resources that we can give to people, then they're going to come. 
right? We don't have to have all the solutions, but we definitely can point people in the right direction to the solution that best fits their need. Um, but we just have to be more strategic and we absolutely have to work together. Our Catholic brothers and yeah. sisters work together and I love that. You know, they, they're centralized. Um, but as yeah. Baptist churches, we are really siloed into our own space. And that's too, yeah. it's, it has its benefits, but sometimes can be to our detriment because we're not communicating. And your church is eight blocks that way. The other person's church is four <laughs> blocks this way. And yet I don't know this pastor and what he or she is doing. I don't know this pastor and what, you know, so we have to have <laughs> that, that collaborative spirit and we yeah. need to strategically think about how we're programming because people will not stay connected if they don't have something to gain from it. Gospel. The Gospel according to Luke. Now his elder son was in the field, and he came and drew nigh to the house, and heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants, and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry, and would not go in. Therefore came his father out, and entreated him. And he answering said unto his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid, that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry, and be glad. For this thy brother was dead, and is alive again, and was lost, and is found. Extra, extra! Alright, let's just bring this third leg to wrap it up. Alright, so we, we talked about the, uh, of course, in, in this podcast we work on the lectionary cycle. Um, so the reading for this Sunday is Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32, popularly known and presented as the uh, prodigal son parable. Mm-hmm. So we talked about you being a son of the community, uh, that you were born into the greater uptown community. Uh, that you currently minister and serve in. Uh, and of course, there's a lot of themes of returning back home uh, uh-huh. in that reading. So, talk about your return. And, I guess, connecting to that scripture. Absolutely. So, um, the, the first thing that comes to mind is, 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 is the beauty of God. Right. And I think about God as we talk about a lot of times, especially in our uh, DEI spaces uh, where it's intersectionality. Right. There's certain intersections that occur um, between different concepts. Um, God is a an intersectional God. And I think that the prodigal son, when I think about it, this is my own personal what I personally gleaned from those scriptures it's this intersectionality of arrogance and grace and for me it speaks strongly to um, my own personal walk uh, and my own personal uh, revelation around how God has really guided me back to the place that I was running away from and so there's always that for me it's, it's 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 really insane when i think about it there's always this intersectionality between arrogance and grace my arrogance feeling as though um i am going to carve my own path right and i'm a believer which means i should definitely uh subject subject myself to god being the head of my path and god aligning me with 
where he wants me to go and what he wants me to do. But I have always, you know, just in that arrogance, I've always carved my own path. But because of his grace, he's always used that to serve a greater purpose. And so my return home is literally uh, a culmination of this intersectionality of arrogance and grace. Um, me looking for, or me choosing Loyola and telling my parents, okay, you don't want me to go to Atlanta, to Emory for school, I'm gonna go to Loyola, right? My dad wanted me to go to Tulane. I said, nope, I'm not doing anything you all want me to do. I'm gonna go to Loyola. I'm gonna find a new church. I'm not coming home to wash my clothes. I'm gonna bring. I'm gonna leave my car at home. I'm gonna take the streetcar with my friends, wherever I need to go. I don't want any parts of it. And this is, you know, the rebellion, the arrogance, right? Eight, 17, yeah. 18 years old. Um, but God really used that because I because I left what I knew. It forced me to have to think more about who God really was to me and what my relationship with Christ really was. How do I cultivate an understanding of the Holy Spirit and its movement inside of me um, when I make certain decisions or when I have certain thoughts or when I want to do certain things? Uh, and so that, I mean, it's really all come full circle because for me, I'm, I'm now serving in the capacity of a pastor and that, that for me is, is mind-blowing. Um, but it, when I, when I, in my reflection, when I think about it, it's all where God had allowed me to go in order to get right here. Um, all of those experiences, all of the, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna get this degree because I want to do this, or I'm gonna, you yeah. know, undertake this particular um, certification, or I'm gonna travel here. All of that, all of it, 100%. I can honestly say, I now use in both medicine and in uh, pastoring, preaching, um, those experiences make my what I have to say on the pulpit fuller, um, it connects greater and more with people, and even in my evangelism, I can talk about, you know, walking away and coming back. So being yeah. here right now is, is really just the actualization of what I felt like God planned for me all along. I just had to get here. That's all. Let's talk. Let's talk about the return a little bit more in that sure. story. So, uh, of course, you know there's two brothers in that story and one father. And one brother did not leave home or the old neighborhood. Um, take a side note. Um, as you know, I live in Los Angeles, California, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, I was watching an interview a couple of years ago with uh, one of the great wonderful people of Los Angeles, uh, Brother Suge Knight, <laughs> wonderful person. And uh, he was telling the story of when he was five, six or whatever young, and his family moved into this, of course, he's probably born in like the early 60s, you know. So his family moved into this all-white neighborhood uh, known as Compton, California. And of course, like me and you, we were in the 80s, we knew that Compton, California was very much black, was right. very much, you know, almost the, not technically the birth of uh, gangster rap, but at least popularization, NWA yeah. and such. Um, and right. everything we think of, uh, very much inner city, right? So within two decades, that had changed. So when we say things like gentrification, when we break down the word, it is the gentry, privilege, returning. We put these racial undertones into it. Mm -hmm. Now you were born in an area called Irish Channel. Mm -hmm. Now to the non-New Orleans listeners, um, they may hear that and they think, oh, it's an all-black neighborhood? Does he mean like the dark Irish, the black Irish, as they say? <laughs> so, but if we check the history though, at one point in history, that name and that identity did match up. Yeah. But the gentry left, right? That's right. Now, this happened in neighborhoods all over. So I don't think it's happening in, in Compton as much, but it's happening definitely in Inglewood, um, where folks are returning to the old neighborhoods that their grandparents and their parents left. When white flight, when folks yep. left Detroit, you know, and two generations born outside, they're coming back to downtown Detroit, whatever yep. city, Oakland, wherever it may be. Um, 
So here we are as African Americans, Latinos, whoever lived in these inner city areas. And we are the older brother who never left home. And here comes the gentrifiers who have come back to claim, claim their gentry, claim their geographic heritage. And we're like, get out of here. You are, <laughs> you know, you, you, you wasted your riches elsewhere. Yeah. So is there, is there anything that we can learn from that brother in living with and accepting a greater part of what our community will be now as Christians? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it, it, for me, really teaches me about um, understanding my own personal place in, in this return. And as I said before, you know, understanding that Christ is for whoever will have him, right? Like, whosoever yeah. will in the Baptist church, we say, um, let them come. And um, I think all of us in certain ways can take on the characteristics of that other brother. Where we are reluctant, we don't want um, reconciliation. Uh, but that I think for us means that we need to reprioritize what is most important. And so I think that in that kind of situation, we need to understand that our churches serve a very important purpose in our, in our neighborhoods, no matter what yes. they look like. Now, of course, that doesn't mean we sit quiet while people are forced out, but it does mean that while we are still fighting, at the same time, we are still evangelizing because yes. people aren't going anywhere, right? Like, and there's going to be people who come back and there's gonna be people who leave out. And it's this cyclical nature of things that happen um, depending on, you know, it, uh, because we live in a capitalist society, right? And, and the more yes. we understand and the more we know, uh, depending on the, the type of city that you live in, New Orleans being fairly liberal, um, that's, that's something that we will always deal with. So we work with what we work with, and that is the here and now. And we try to fight against any injustice. So if people coming back means injustice, we fight against the injustice. But those who come back, we welcome them into our churches, right? And so it's just that, that balance, right? We're not, we're not, it's the, it's a fight against the idea, the institution, the practice, but the people, the people mm -hmm. we still love them, right? And that's what the, yeah. the older brother didn't get. He he wanted uh, no reconciliation, right? He wanted the, mm -hmm. the brother to just deal with the circumstances and that's it. But there is grace. There's grace for all mm -hmm. of us. And so in our practice of ministering, evangelizing, and bringing the word to those who do live in our neighborhoods or who are returning to our neighborhoods, that's the prioritizing we need to do. Understanding that grace is above it all, right? His grace is sufficient for all. Um, and, yeah. and we need to move in, through that lens um, as we are still fighting to stop the, the institution of gentrification um, as it yeah. you know changes our, the dynamics of our neighborhoods. Revisiting your childhood home can be a happy trip down memory lane, but it can also be a little unnerving for you and the current owners. The New York Times, October 4th, 2019. I'm about to let you go, but there's two surprise questions I did not okay. before. Okay. All right, then I questions you're not gonna be on the news don't worry <laughs> all right first one you ready yeah who is jesus who is jesus mm -hmm. um can you be more specific however you want to take that okay because i mean we're talking about christ right 
I'm not talking about my neighbor, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> just want to be clear. I don't know if it's a trick question or not. Um, so, so for me, Jesus is um, the crux upon which I've built my faith. God here, who came here um, as 100% man, 100% God, um, as the, the fulfillment of the law, the perfect fulfillment of the law, um, the kinsman redeemer, and then the ultimate sacrifice, um, allowing me to return to the Father uh, when my time comes. So that, that is who Jesus is. That's who he represents to me. My sin. <laughs> yeah, we didn't get the organ in the background. <laughs> Waymaker, Rose and Sharon. <laughs> I know you can do it. We're going to put one of the videos up. Yes, we can. Look at this guy. He's not a mountain mannered pharmacist. Right. <laughs> All right. Second one. Yeah, yeah. On that note, what then is the gospel? So the gospel is uh, us. The gospel is the tool that we use to bring Jesus to others. And so when we talk about, I think the formal gospel, of course, we refer to the Bible. I, I believe there are people's personal relationship through testimony can also be the gospel them telling their personal experience how Christ has truly led them in their lives um, away from sin and um, into a greater understanding of who he is to them and uh, the benefit that they have in getting to know him and to understanding the sacrifice that he made. So for me, it's it's not just the, the formal book, it's also the, the, the life that we live exemplifies Christ, so that's the gospel. It's the testimonies that we give that talks about his influence in our lives. That's the gospel. And then, of course, understanding who God is, who Christ is, we find that in the formal book, um, the Bible, um, that, that explains, gives us some insight. Of course, not all, but some insight as to who Christ is. So that would be the gospel for me. Good answer. Good answer. Hey, before we before we leave here, do you have anything to plug? Um, yeah, actually, we have uh, we have we are we're not currently, but my church is the Progressive Baptist Church here in New Orleans. Yes. For any of your listeners who are in the New Orleans area, um, we are located in um, Mid City, in and we are at twelve fourteen South Robertson Street. Um, in New Orleans, Louisiana, we are a welcoming and loving congregation, and we cook well. So come on by, yeah. because because you're going to leave with a great word. You're going to leave with um, you know a spirit that is is has been has been given uh, the gospel um, through music, through prayer, and through preaching. But you're also going to leave full and uh, satisfied. Right, and that is with the gospel itself, but also with a good plate of southern cooked food. So, come yeah. stop on by, y'all. Stop on by. It's it's gonna be worth your time. That sounds wonderful. I've been there myself, and uh, it's yeah. a wonderful place. Yeah, thanks for coming. I appreciate that. It was good to see you. It's always good to see people who I know and and, and have had this long, long uh, history with. When you guys come, I mean, my spirit really just swells. Like it does me all the good in the world to see people like that. So, like you, Jay, I appreciate you. Of course, next time I come, I'll drop by and then we'll, we'll go by um, Mr. Dennis and get some haircuts. Well, <laughs> for what little hair I have left, absolutely. Hey, <laughs> but two or three strands of hair are gathered together, <laughs> you know? Yes. You're going to pray for increase after that, all right? That's right. <laughs> Do it now, Lord. <laughs> Returning back home has a lot of implications to it. 
This story in the Gospel of Luke chapter 15 verses 11 to 32 was about much more than the prodigal son. For context, remember that Jesus spoke this in a series of three parables. The story of the lost sheep, the story of the lost coin, and this last one that we call the prodigal son could be seen as the story of the lost son. Or really is it the story of the lost sons? And as me and Jamarin spoke, there's a lot of lost things that we can talk about in Christianity. The message really is to the brother who never left, who's a symbol for the Pharisees. And today, it could be the message for those of us who have left our family churches, maybe even left our denominations, possibly even left religion as a whole. It can be a message for us who stayed, stayed in our neighborhoods, stayed in our families' houses, and now there are these newcomers in the neighborhood whose family or faces or even races hadn't been seen in this part in decades and generations. And wherever the message meets you in your particular context, remember, it is not just about coming home, but it is about receiving those who come back home. Because the gospel of grace is a gospel of peace, and the gospel of peace is a gospel of hospitality, and the gospel of hospitality is the gospel of the God of love. It is not about condemnation, but receiving and loving our sons and brothers that were once dead, but that are now alive and with us.